Imagine having a father who you trusted, dedicated your life to, and shared some of the most important years of your life's development, only to find out that he was fake the whole time. Imagine how devastated you would be if that same father told you that there was no place found for you where you had faithfully served with blood, sweat, and tears for seven years, only to have some of your deepest dreams dashed against the rocks. I'm Norman Brown, and I'm the author of the book entitled Among the Wolves. For seven years, I endured one of the toughest training periods of my life. Ironically, it wasn't until it was over that I realized what happened during that time. And that is what I felt when I discovered that I had been in a false prophet's domain. Or, in other words, I was among the wolves. Among the wolves will challenge you to see when you have encountered a false prophet, false doctrine, or just plain error. It exposes some of the most prominent cults that exist in the world today, and by the Holy Spirit, it will bring you to a place of healing and forgiveness. Among the Wolves is available on Amazon.com for the Kindle app, which may be downloaded on almost all electronic devices. My prayer is that you will find freedom from bitterness, hate, anger, and unbelief as you read this book. Get your copy today. Today I have a guest on a show that many people know around the world. He's been traveling for a long time. He's a major voice in the earth, and um, he happens to be a friend of mine. And uh, we got him on the show today. His name is Bill Vanderbush. Bill, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Norman. Great to be here. It's a pleasure to speak with you. I'm glad to have you on here. You know, um, I just want to tell the people that you know may or may not know about you just a little bit um as far as your um your bio so you've been a pastor for over 25 years you spent 12 of those years in austin texas um and then you had a supernatural encounter that drew you into a really incredible adventure with god um of course many who are listening um to the show they already know you travel around the world with your message on identity um, and you now serve as a pastor at Community Presbyterian Church in Celebration, Florida, where you reside with Tracy, your wife. And you are the co-author of The Forgotten Way, along with New York Best Times, a New York Times best-selling author, rather, Ted Decker. So, um, you know, just to get right into it, I know your dad was the strongest influence in your life spiritually. Um, so how did you come into knowing the Lord? You know, that's a, wow, that's a really great question. Uh, I don't get that one very often because most of the time people, uh, people come, you know, uh, knowing a little bit about my background of family and things. And so they know perhaps from my dad's ministry, um, and, and the strength of his own faith. And so a lot of times they just make this assumption that I was, uh, born saved or something like that. Or, uh, immediately I came out speaking in tongues or something. I, I don't know, um, <laughs> I don't know how, how to answer that question in a short amount of time, but let me do, do my best. I, I don't remember a time when I didn't know about the Lord. I, I remember uh, my mom used to tell me that I learned to speak um, phonetically just by listening to my dad preach. And so I would just repeat what he said. And then he'd, uh, at the age of like two or whatever, I could start to walk. He would let me actually go through prayer lines with him and, and lay hands on people. And so I just remember growing up doing that. I just, I just watched and he never said, you know, I couldn't do anything. So I just grew up believing that no matter how old you were, 
you could uh, you could do these things um, lay hands on the sick. You could you know cast out demons. You could you know see people healed and all those those things. So I, I just it was kind of a it was the best kind of discipleship, and which is why my father was my greatest influence because he uh, he he pioneered I guess for me what it looked like to model. Uh, life and ministry, and and uh, you know there was no restriction really in a sense on what I could or couldn't it, it, it couldn't do as as young as um, as as five years old. You know I remember him just having me stand up, grab a microphone, and just tell everybody you know do you love Jesus and things like that. So I, here I'm you know uh, standing in front of crowds at, at a small age, and so but I do remember I, I have a real strong recollection of a moment in time at actually at the age of five at Lakewood Church in Houston, uh, Houston, Texas, and in the children's ministry down there. And uh, there was a there was a guy who was real, real popular back in the in the 80s named Willie George, pastor church on the move in Tulsa, Oklahoma, yeah, for a number of years. But, you know, you're familiar with Willie George's name. Mm-hmm. He used to travel with this thing called the Gospel Bill Show. Yep. <laughs> and uh, a lot of puppets, and I mean, it, was, it was the hottest thing going for, you know, kids in church at the time. And... Willie, uh, Willie had a, 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 I would say, just a real strong gift and a knack and a belief that children ought to be introduced to the Holy Spirit in an early age. So the first time I can remember actually feeling, consciously feeling an awareness of the presence of God, the presence of the Holy Spirit, was at the age of five. Hmm. And so um, it was actually at that moment, uh, you know, Willie says, you've never prayed this prayer, pray it. And of course, then you pray it prayer to receive Jesus Christ in your heart. I know that my mom and dad had prayed that with me probably nightly. You know, dad was always leading people in, in, uh, in services and in a prayer as they came forward to receive Christ. And, and he would say, everybody just re- say this with me. And so I would say that night after night. But the thing, the, the one that really stands out to me was that point in time at a Willie George meeting at Lakewood church in Houston at the age of five. And then, uh, I don't know, man, it was just, you know, I, I got, I got, I must have got saved, you know, uh, 10,000 times in my life because, you know, <laughs> as much as my dad was into grace, the grace of God, um, you know, I was always comparing myself with everybody else around me. And so, you know, the question was always, was I saved enough? Was I doing enough? Would I repented enough? And, you know, you just never 100% sure. And that's just a recipe for disaster. And um, it's not that mom and dad were wrong in their teaching. They were absolutely, I mean, they were, Right, but but um, I, I came up in a in the remnants of what my dad was a part of for many years called the Holiness Movement, which Dad always said only lacked two things: holiness and movement. Otherwise, they had everything down. You know? <laughs> so, so uh, I'm find it out with two. <laughs> you got you got you got in on that one. Yeah, I yeah, was. So, <laughs> so uh, it was you know it was very legalistic, and everybody compared themselves to everybody else. Were you praying enough? Were you fasting enough? Were you doing enough? Yeah. And, uh, you know, and then fast forward to many years ago when I ran into him, a man named George Banoff, who, uh, uh, of course, he, the Supernatural Life Conference, you saw Georgian and, and Georgian just modeled this life of just radical surrender to the, to the finished work of the cross and the message of the grace of God. And I, and I just found a, a whole, whole new level of freedom. And that led to this whole message on identity. And, oh my goodness, I just, you know, it's like a whole new world. So I, I say all that just to say, you know, from the age of five, you think, okay, well, you have everything down by the time you're 25. Oh, my goodness. I, the older I get, the less I know. I feel like hmm. I feel like there's just so much more to learn. 
And I always tell people it would have been great if you would have met me like 15 years ago when I knew so much more than I know now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's that young man syndrome when they think they know everything, you know. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And I feel like I've kind of long, long left that past. So I don't mind saying I don't know. I'm, I'm okay with that. Yeah, well, it's kind of interesting. You kind of covered one of the questions I wanted to ask you, and that was basically about the identity uh, message, how that was birthed in you. Because, mm. you know, the the problem that I see with a lot of people in the body of Christ is you hear these messages of, I'm just a worm, I'm just nobody, I'm just, you know, a sinner saved by grace, and all these things that are not even in the scriptures. Or they saw something in the scripture that they took out of context, and then therefore they're getting the whole message mixed up where we can see throughout the scriptures that God is talking about our identity in Christ, and yet people are still missing it. So how did you get to that point? I know you said that you saw something about Georgian, but how did you get to the point where God, because another thing about it is I know that God will take us through a process where we ourselves are kind of like the test, we're we're the test dummy, quote unquote, for what God is going to have us to teach. You know what I'm saying? So he'll take us through stuff, and then all of a sudden we get to the point where we got the message, and then we're preaching out of that experience. So how did it happen for you? Yeah, well, that's a great question. And, you know, when you ask that question, you mentioned things like, you know, people saying I'm a sinner saved by grace. And, all. and there's, I could, you could feel the offense, I'm sure, by a lot of people that are listening to this that are going, hey, wait a minute. I, that's that's what I always say. That's, and and so when people have that mindset, and that perspective, I have no condemnation for that because I understand where it comes from. It, it comes from a sense of, like, um, wanting to stay humble before God, never thinking high, more highly of yourself than you want to and that thing. I get that. That's that's really important. But there comes a point where you begin to realize, wait a minute, um, uh, I was saved from something to into something. So rather than constantly identify myself by what I've been saved out of or from, I need to discover what I've been saved to. So where where it came down for me is where you know I'd hear all these messages. Um, by well, you know, well-meaning people on about on the reality of the cross saved you, the cross saved you, it was the cross that saved you. But then, if you read uh, Paul's writings, Paul says uh, that if if Christ is still dead, then we're still all in our sins. In other words, it wasn't the death of the cross of Christ that saved you. So I'm thinking, wait, well, I'm saved by what? Grace through faith. It was the, the power of the resurrection actually that saved me. And the cross is important because it facilitated the resurrection. But it was a resurrection that saved me, and he took me with him through the entire process. Mm-hmm. So when Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I live. Christ lives in me. You know, and the life I now live, oh, wait, wait a minute, I'm alive, but Christ is alive, but I was dead. You know, 2 Corinthians 5, um, one died for all, the all died. So he brought us into the cross with him, and that's beautiful. And And I think we're really good at getting people to come to the cross getting him to nail that old man to the cross, but then it's like we don't know what to do with him after that. Mm-hmm. And if they ever dare look like they're alive to dreams and goals and hopes and visions, we man, oh, no, we got to bring those to the cross as well. we got to nail those constantly to the cross. And I realize the equation has to follow all the way through from getting you know crucified on the cross, buried with him, to the resurrection uh, of of newness of life, and and so 
um, the, the term that I, I started seeing is, you know, we got to we got to teach people. I guess we got to bring people to a revelation of what it looks like to live on the other side of the cross. What does it look like to live? Um, uh, it's no longer I that live, but Christ that lives in me. And those phrases started really popping out at me. That was the part that really caught me as I started noticing that Paul's obsession was talking about Christ in you. This is the mystery of the gospel, he says in Colossians, Christ in you, the hope of glory. I started realizing what he was doing was he was modeling and mirroring what Jesus was saying over and over again, most um, most prevalent in, in the gospel of John, where Jesus says in John 14, 20, in that day you will know I am in the Father, you are in me, and I am in you. And the day he's talking about is after the resurrection, when he's beaten death and the Holy Spirit has come come to the church. Well, those things have happened. So that day that he's speaking of there is actually available to every believer right now. It's, it, there's a revelation knowledge that's available to you and I. That we are in him and he is in us all at the same time. There's no distance or separation. So now that started me on a whole other quest, you know, where I read like God told Jeremiah, I knew you before I formed you. So I realized, wait a minute, what did he know? If, if he was the first person to know about me, if he was the very first thought about me, if, if my origin is in the heart and the mind of God, I want to know what he first thought because, because that's who you really are. And so um, it, it stops being about let me figure out who I am by looking at everybody around me or asking everybody else who do you say that I am and started becoming about, well, let's, let's ask God. I mean, he's my originator. He's my, uh, my creator. Let's ask him, who do you say that I am? Yeah, and from that place, going, uh, I, I just, I just want to, and that's uncomfortable, though, Norman. People do that. If you say, you know, God, I'm just going to let go of all of the lies and the labels that life and people have attached to me, that my behaviors, my sin, my issues have attached to me, and and I just want to know, God, who do you say that I am? And the reason we can ask that question is, you know, like in Second Corinthians five, it says God was in Christ reconciling the world, reconciling us to himself, and the way he did it was by not counting our transgressions against us. In other words, he's not identifying us by our behavior. Now, the world will. You'll face consequences in this world because of our behavior and, and things that we do. There's no doubt about that. But that's not the basis by which God identifies us. He's not, he's not looking at our behavior to try to figure out who we are. He's known who we are long before we ever did anything to impress him or disappoint him. So then if, if he's not holding your transgressions against you, that that means that from God's perspective, who you really are is that default position that he always knew from before the foundation of the world. So now if I ask him, who, who do you say that I am? The biggest challenge I have, uh, apart from really hearing his voice, is believing what he says. Because he'll start to reveal to you you know, the treasures that are in you, the hidden greatness of your heart. He'll start to reveal to you the, the, just the unveiled, um, uh, uh, the, the beauty of what he's placed in you, what he's seen of you, what he thinks about you. David said in Psalm 139, the preciousness of the thoughts of God towards you outnumber the sand. So you could spend, you know, more than a lifetime discovering what God believes about you. And then, but, you know, here's the thing, and this is where people get tripped up. They go, wait a minute, Bill, if, if, if I knew that, if I if I if God let me know that wouldn't that produce pride? Well, no, because it, it really is impossible for you to take pride in something that you did not do. Um, you can't take pride; it's just pure gratitude. And so, to see what He's done, to see what He believes, 
what it produces in us is this incredible explosion of gratitude in our heart. I mean, we're now we're from a place of thanksgiving. And then that place of gratitude is the, I would say, the, the, the soil from which a life of fruitfulness springs. So people are always interested in, in living fruitful lives. Well, they attach that fruitfulness to the works that they do. So they make up some good works to try to impress God. But fruitfulness springs from a life of gratitude that comes from a life of surrendering to what he believes about us. And then that belief actually empowers you to go out and do things you could never do before because he believes you're better than you think you are. He believes you're more amazing than you think you are. And uh, and then when you believe what he believes about you, then start changing the way you see everybody else around you. So it's not like he's only believing this about you to the detriment or the exclusion of every other person out there. Um, it, it's really difficult to have a love for people when you have a hatred for yourself. Yeah. Because you'll project, in a sense, that, that worthlessness and that hatred upon everybody else. And you can yeah. hear it in a lot of people's preaching and <clears throat> teaching. I mean, they, they just come across as, as, man, you're just, you're a worm, you're worthless, you're this or that. And I'm thinking, yeah, I don't think at any point in time God has ever thought that about us. <laughs> and so, yeah. right, to live our lives in disagreement with what God believes about us, well, that's religion. That's just, I mean, and that's foolishness. So, you so, know, um, so that was it. That was kind of the core of how that came about. Yeah, so um, <clears throat> this wasn't something I was thinking of earlier, but um, I am thinking of it now. I remember you said something about there was some supernatural stuff that happened with your father. And mm -hmm. um, it was like this is a thing that kind of introduced you. You said something about you've never seen anybody live as quite like he was living. I don't know exactly the wording that you used, but I remember something along those lines. Can you kind of um, break that down a little bit? Sure, sure. Well, uh, he was um, he was doing a a a revival at a Nazarene church in a particular town, and, and you know we were part of Wesleyan Nazarene Wesleyan Methodist. It's all kind of a big hybrid back then of, of evangelical churches, and uh, you know just purely preaching the simplicity of the gospel, um, but the 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 core of the message was that Jesus, you know, accept Christ and and Jesus saves you so that you can go to heaven when you die. But and and then and then empowers you to live righteous and holy here and now. But you know you're you're going to be a, you're going to be pretty well depraved. You know all the way up until the point you see him face to face and you'll always struggle and those things. So that was you know Dad lived that. I mean it was a very legalistic uh, world. Dad uh, you know he didn't have a wedding ring. They didn't believe in jewelry. You know, black suits only. No color in your tie. I mean it was like really. I mean, it was really a it was a different kind of a world. So he comes into this one town. They're doing a um, they're doing a revival, and this is back in the day when revivals um, were scheduled and it could last, you know, three four weeks at a time. I mean, you didn't have like a two night or three night conference or revival. It, it, revival took time. I mean, you really had to plow some ground, and so night after night, people would come out. So that was the beginning of this one revival. It was at a city here in Florida, actually, and, and um, there was a, a, a cafe in the town. It was called the Praise the Lord Cafe. And my dad asked the pastor, said, uh, hey, tell me about that cafe. And the pastor said, oh, don't go in there. That place is of the devil, which really intrigued my father because he was like, you know, I'm not exactly sure how the how the devil can be more bold about the faith than I'm allowed to be. You know? <laughs> and uh, and so dad says, you know, he says, you know, your mom and I backed into this restaurant. And uh, and so sure enough, you know, they go, I guess I was staying with some people at the time with babysitting and somebody was babysitting me at the time. So I was just a little kid. My parents went to the Praise the Lord Cafe, and when they walked in, the owner of the, 
cafe, just recognized them by the by the Holy Spirit and um, came over. Now, my, my dad back then didn't believe in prophets. He didn't believe in prophets. He didn't believe anybody was listening to the voice of God or hearing the voice of God anymore. But that was done, that uh, he was a cessationist, you know, the gifts had ceased. There's no such thing as healing, miracles, signs, wonders. That stuff was all done in his mind. So here he is in, in uh, uh, the Praise the Lord Cafe, and the owner walks up to him and starts reading his mail. And then he calls some wait staff over and waiters and waitresses started prophesying over my mom and dad. They laid hands on him and uh, prayed for them to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And suddenly my mom and dad started doing the very thing you, they didn't think you could do, and that was speaking in tongues. And it really... It really tripped them out. It wigged them out. But they, they couldn't deny the reality of the moments and the joy that they were experiencing. And so Dad says, he says, we can't talk about this. And they left it when they finally left the cafe. He said, we can't talk about this. He says, um, we're going to have to call this something else, but we can't, uh, we can't talk about it. And so that night, Dad gets up to preach. And um, uh, my dad was, uh, he didn't need a microphone. And it wasn't that he screamed and yelled. He just had a really... I mean, it filled the, the room, this voice that he that he had, and um, and I guess some people would say that he did yell, but uh, but he was a happy man. He was just a really really happy guy. It wasn't it wasn't yelling in an angry way. He was just a really happy guy. Mm-hmm. Yet uh, when he got up that night, and he was a phenomenal communicator, one of the best communicators of the gospel I've, I've ever known, perhaps the the greatest, and um, that I've known. And and so he gets up that night and. Um, in the middle of his message, this is the way he would tell the story. He said he heard the audible voice of God say, stop, I want to heal somebody. Hmm. And he responded right in the middle of the message. I mean, he just stops right while he's preaching as if he's listening to a voice. And he says out loud, how do you want to do it? And what he hears back is he hears this voice say, have these people grip their Bibles, you pray, and I'll heal. And so hmm. dad says out loud, I remember here, I'm sitting with mom, you know, in this listening to this and, uh, we're both just kind of stunned, shocked at what's going on here. And Dad says out loud to the congregation that night, he says, God wants to heal somebody. And if you'll group your Bibles, I'm going to pray and God's going to heal you. And um, Dad said it was the only time in his life that 100% of the people in the room that had a physical knee got healed. I mean, there was a guy with a broken back there. The guy healed and started running around the building. Lady came out of wheelchairs, maybe threw crutches away. I mean, it was like a revival broke out. That was 30-some years ago. And that church, actually, to this day, there's there's two women in that church that were in that meeting and still remember it. Of course, they're quite elderly now, and, uh, but they still talk about it. And so when I met the pastor a few years ago, he said, oh, yeah, he said, people still talk about that meeting. And the church just exploded at that point. And that started my parents off on a really a quest um, to see what was possible. I mean, things were now happening that they didn't think were possible. So now they wanted to know what is God capable of doing this side of, of eternity? And so um, that was that was their lifelong quest, and still continues to be for my mom. My, my dad passed away about four years ago, so yeah. um, so I, it's kind of my quest to carry on the same the same search and discovery. I'm, I'm really really taken with that. Well, that's a um, a great legacy to um, to keep on to continue, man. I I wish I could say the same about. <clears throat> my my family as far as my father and everything um my father wasn't able to complete what god had for him to do but i believe that the lord is going to have me to kind of like continue that and also to increase in whatever it is that he has put in my heart but um you mm, know it's beautiful 
Yeah, so I wanted to, uh, you know, this is a question that probably you, you may never get this anywhere else, but this is one of those questions. <laughs> this is one of those questions that I give because, you know, I know everybody has a story. So especially being a preacher's kid, those are the ones that people always say are the worst. So in, in, in my, in my, um, my, my whole, um, thinking along those lines, I'm like, okay, so what is Bill's story outside of the church? When did you, did you always stay on the path or did, was there a time in your life, like you got a little older, you were a teenager or whatever the case, and you were like, man, I just want to live life the way I want to do it. You know what I'm saying? And then whatever happens, happens. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness, Norman! Yeah, no, actually, yeah, it's uh, it's very true. I think uh, the preachers' kids, you know, everybody says to them, you, "I got this a lot." You know, you're going to be a preacher like your dad, right? You're going to be, you know, you're going to do this like your dad, right? And of course, you become defined by your own father, and so um, you kind of, you know, kick <clears throat> against that a little bit. You want to kind of stretch and see, you know, um, you, you you grow up hearing, "Oh my goodness." Uh, um, you know, people, these they do these horrible things and you think, oh, I'm completely incapable of doing that because, you know, you get told all the time, well, no, you're, you know, you have Jesus in you. And so you're, you know, you, you can, you can't do that. You, you shouldn't do that and don't do this and don't do that. So you kind of get to this point where you think, well, you're not capable of certain things. And so for me, yeah, man, I, I, I tried to, I tried to flush the gospel so many times in my life. That's why I said, I think I got saved you know, a thousand times growing up and, and throughout the course of my life, I'm sure, I mean, in word or in deed, I've, in, in deed or thought or in action, I've broken, you know, all the Ten Commandments multiple times. I mean, I've, I've, it's, <laughs> I think it, it's, you know, I, I came to a point in my life where I realized, you know, I, you know, particularly dark season, I realized, you know, if this grace thing isn't real, I'm a dead man. I mean, and, uh, um, you know, it's interesting how God will allow you to take journeys uh, down roads where you make decisions and choices that lead you to a place where you either completely reject the goodness and the grace of God and you live a life of complete self-destruction or you just surrender. And it has nothing to do with how good or righteous you are. It just has everything to do with the realization you come to the fact that you are not righteous. So for me, throughout the course of my life, even though I grew up in a minister's home, goodness, I didn't, I, I didn't, I made horrible choices. Um, I made horrible choices on purpose uh, a lot of times, and, uh, you know, a, a lot of them were just out of sheer rebellion, challenging God as a young man, as a, even a young minister, you know, uh, and, and through the course of time, I mean, one of the beautiful things I think God has done is taken uh, taken just all the legalistic judgment out of me. I, I literally have, I feel like I have no right to judge or condemn anyone. And um, nor do I have the desire to, um, because I realize I've been forgiven so, so deeply and profoundly. And, uh, and, and I tell you, the time where I was my most legalistic, the time where I was my most dogmatic uh, about things was the time was I was in my darkest season. So especially for people that are walking, in a sense, out, you know, I don't care if you're a pastor, an evangelist or whatever, you're walking out of season where you're just dogmatic and judgmental about everybody and, and just railing and ranting and whatever, I have... I especially have compassion for people in that boat because I was there and I know exactly what's happening. You preach a lot of hell when you're going through it yourself. You preach what you're in. You preach what you're living. You preach what you're you're uh, going through. So when I see somebody that exhibits, you know, a lot of love and joy and peace, 
ask him how they got there, and and you know, I, I hear a story of redemption, and I, and I have experienced that on on so many levels. So you know, you know, I don't care, honestly, I don't care what the sin is. I mean, I, I I feel like I feel like I have zero condemnation for for anybody right now. I think here we are in this real judgmental culture. I, I was talking to somebody the other day and saying, you know, on one hand. I think a lot of people, in a sense, are rejoicing because it seems like you know the, the, the Hollywood and the media are are suddenly getting a conscience out of nowhere, you know, and uh, you know things are being brought into the light that you know I think maybe two years ago nobody would have even cared about. Yeah. Um, not that they shouldn't have back then or they shouldn't now, but the fact is, is like what we're seeing is this sudden um, uh, culture of judgment, and so you know on the daily you have you know people coming out and you know, resigning because of the, you know, things in their past, 20, 30, 40 years. And I really think it's a, it's a bit of a test for the church. Are we going to jump on the bandwagon of condemnation? Are we going to realize, man, you know, for whatever reason, you know, there's broken people that have achieved tremendous success and positions of power. And if we're not prepared to uh, to receive them and let grace heal them, um, then, then whatever we're preaching, it's not the gospel. It's not good news. It's not good news if it's not good news to the most broken of us. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that, that, that goes everything from the perpetrator to the victim all the way across. The gospel has to have the power to heal. Um, yeah. the gospel has to have the power to be, to be more powerful than the most powerful drug. You know, I have no condemnation for people who are on drugs. I have no condemnation for people who are addicted to substances. I have no condemnation for people who, in a, in a, you know, crazy blindness or looking for love and, and even stepping outside the bounds of their own covenant. You know what I mean? It's like all those things wrong. Sure. But I'm not interested in identifying the things that are wrong as much as I, I am finding the people that are broken. Um, I think right now we've, we've got a, a massive uh, rush toward, you know, everybody's wanting to become the, the most clever and the most holy moral policeman. When in fact, what we need is a bunch of grace doctors. Uh, physicians, grace, grace, physicians, bringing bringing healing and wholeness to to a world whose brokenness is being put on display, uh, and uh, and that that's I I really I'm I'm praying that the the church steps up. This grace message has been vilified so strongly, and uh, it's being come against so strongly. And and grace is Jesus. Jesus is grace, the empowering force of the heaven to be able to to surrender to the righteousness of God in Christ as an identity, as a, as a point of identity. And, and whenever we downplay grace, we, we exalt judgment as a, as a virtue. And, and the world is being judged. Um, it's judging itself. And the last thing it needs right now is judgment from the church. It needs, it needs healing from the church. Yeah. So, um, so that's what I'm most interested in. And I don't think you can give it away unless you've experienced it yourself. You know, yeah. if you've ever been forgiven much, then you love a ton. And, uh, and, and at the same time, one of the things I love to tell people is, is look, don't don't let your darkest moment define you. Um, your, your darkest moments don't have to be the defining points of your life. And uh, you know, the testimonies uh, I love I love testimonies. You know, people who come out of all kinds of things. And, and uh, you know, in my own life, I've tasted a lot of a lot of those things. But um, I discovered some time ago, surrounded by a lot of wisdom and voices and in my life that has said, look, your darkest moments don't have to define you. Um, you know, uh, it, it's just, I think it's a really big deal that people understand when they come, when they come to Christ and they step into a relationship with an authentic church that's preaching the gospel of grace, that it's not that their darkest moments are swept under the rug. 
Now they're completely and fully dealt with so that now we can move away from that as a point of identity. That just becomes a point of your history. And you don't want to forget it because you don't want to repeat it. But it becomes a point of, 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 of kind of like a, a place that you revisit to celebrate what Christ has done, not to go back and revisit the guilt and shame of it. And so, uh, you know, I'm just, I'm really thrilled to see people coming to a, a revelation of that grace in a place that heals their heart. So they can turn around and then minister to others, and that's a that's a huge, huge priority for me. So you so know, kind of a broad roundabout way to answer the question. Yeah, yeah, that gives it gives hope to people. Yeah, it's it's all good. Um, so uh, based on what you were just saying about the you know the dark place and everything, I'm just I'm curious because I know that um, you know many people have different ways of how they come into ministry. It might be they went to a seminary, a Bible college, some kind of ORU university, something like that or whatever. Um, sure. How did it happen for you? You know, I don't I don't know as if I've ever experienced um, like a moment where I would say of a call of God. Uh, I, I don't I don't ever really remember having like a any kind of an angelic visitation where, you know, um, you know, where Jesus showed up in a vision or dream or anything like that. Because I always feel like I've had a relationship with the Lord. And, and then I grew up um, in this home where my dad played the Bible on cassette tape. You know, people remember what those things are. <laughs> and so, <laughs> and, and he played it constantly. And so, you know, I, I don't think it had anything to do with he was trying to, like, indoctrinate me. He gen- if, if nobody was there, he would have played it. He genuinely just loved the Word of God, and he and he soaked his life in that. I mean, it was like his it was food for him, and um, and so I grew up really hearing the narrative of of the scriptures, and and kind of catching the heart of the story, you know. Now, over the course of time, I I didn't give a whole lot of, of thought to it at the time. But it just kind of stuck in you. You know, if you hear a song 15, 20 times, it just sort of sticks with you and you don't ever forget it. Well, the same was true then. And and so it wasn't until my 30s, you know, when I felt like life just sort of started falling into place. And, and here I am, and I've been pastoring and things like that. Oh, by default, um, how I get into it is I just sort of fell into it. I went to Bible College at Christ for the Nations in, in Dallas, but I was going to leave there and go on to something else. Um, I really never wanted to get into, you know, to ministry because that was my dad's thing. It wasn't my thing. And then I got invited to be a youth ministry uh, intern at a church. And um, basically it was the youth pastor. It was just their fun way of saying, you know, we're not paying you, but you're going to work a lot. And uh, so, um, <laughs> so, uh, and the youth group, the youth group blew up and it exploded. And so another guy says, we come be my youth pastor after I graduated. I went to Austin, did that youth group, same thing. It blew up and, Exploded. Next thing I knew, the senior pastor left, and they invited me to come be the pastor of the church. And I realized the majority of people in the church were youth ministry parents, so it just made sense to uh, uh, to step into and, and do that at the time. And uh, and and then the frustration, I guess, it was, you know, I would hear sermons, I would hear messages that made me just think, you know, and no judgment or anything, but I'm thinking to myself, oh my goodness, that's, that's not the story. That's not the narrative, you know, um, and then once a person would preach or they'd put in a book or something, even if it was just blatantly wrong, you know, um, 
to the spirit of the story. They, you know, it would just be um, uh, spread all over the place. And I'd just go from, I'd hear sermon after sermon and meeting after meeting with interpretations of scripture. I'm just thinking to myself, oh my goodness, that's, you know, that's, that's actually not true, you know, and I'll give you an example. I'll give you an example of one. Um, here's one I've heard recently. So John 10, 10 is the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Well, we've always identified the thief as the devil. I mean, I think a hundred percent of the sermons I've ever heard say, you know, yeah. the thief is the devil. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Well, if you look at the story, Jesus is talking to a group of religious people. And in John 10, one, he says, um, uh, any person who tries to enter into the sheepfold uh, any other way than by the door, tries to climb up some way, you know, go through a window, bust through a wall, dig under, any other way. He says, that person's a thief and a robber. And then he goes on down a few verses later to say, everybody who's come before me, in other words, who hasn't gone through me, all of them were thieves and, thieves and robbers. And then he goes on to say, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that you might have life and have it more abundantly. Well, there's no point in there where anybody who's listening to that would have ever thought, you know, he's, he's talking to a particular audience. Nobody listening to that would have thought that he was talking about the devil. Yeah. They get, he gets done with the story and they want to kill him. And the reason they want to kill him because they realize they're talking about them, their methodology, their religious traditions. So what Jesus is saying is it's not the thief is not the devil. The thief is any methodology or any religious ritual by which you think you're getting closer to God other than through Christ himself. And so, you know, the, the true thief in the story is religion. The true thief in the story is, is any path to the Father, any way to get closer to God than through Jesus. That is thievery. That's what he's saying here is the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That's exactly what religion will do. Religious ritual that seeks to get close to God through the works that you do apart from resting in the grace of Christ, that will steal, it will kill, and it will destroy you. And and it does many, many people. So, you know, so I'd hear this preached, you know, I, I'd hear it preached, well, you know, the thief is the devil. Okay, I understand it's, it's a satanic mindset that might be trying to convince people that they can get closer to God apart from Jesus. So the the the, the spirit of it is true, but the context of it is, is, is clear. And if people see it for what it is, then they're going to realize, oh, my goodness, it's not my works. It's purely by the grace of God, you know, that that, that I can even have a relationship with the Father. And uh, and then the story is seen for what it is, and that that is like throughout the course of the scripture, and all of those those bits of wisdom and nuggets of revelation. Just I mean, it was just an inherent um, byproduct of just I would say thousands of hours of listening to um, uh, you know Alexander Scurby read the scripture on cassette <laughs> when I whether I wanted to or not. Yeah. You know, so. So how I came into ministry was, you know, I, I I just start sharing something, and next thing I know, somebody's saying, will you, will you teach? Will you preach? Will you this and that and whatnot? And so it opened up just tons of tons of doorways, and, and uh, they continue to open. So that's, that's kind of how that happened. So along the way, you meet the love of your life, Tracy. Yeah. How did that happen, <laughs> and when? At what point in time did that happen? <laughs> it was um, – uh, it was 1978, actually. We were five years old. Wow. 77, 78. <laughs> my parents decided to make Austin, Texas uh, a home base for a couple of years. They pulled into this hippie trailer park, man. It was uh, filled with a bunch of uh, a bunch of hippies. And uh, the people that we happened to pull into 
next door to had this had this little girl that was my age and that was Tracy and over the course of the next two years we just became best of friends and I, I think I would say I actually fell in love with her back at that age I just I really did it was I just I don't know I sort of always had this sense that for whatever reason she and I were just destined to be best friends and um and then we moved away for a time, did a lot of missions work. Dad was traveling a lot. And we came back to, um, came back to Austin when I was 16 and I went to go visit Tracy and we'd written a lot of letters and things, sent pictures here and there and, uh, and whatnot, but I never really paid much attention to it because I really see, see her too much out of sight and out of mind, you know, uh, but then I came back to, to Austin and, uh, she opened the door and I thought, oh my goodness, a lot has changed, you know, since we were five. <laughs> and so, so we got married, uh, we got married at the age of 18 and, uh, just celebrated our 26th wedding anniversary. Wow. Congratulations, man. So, thank you. Thank man, you. She's awesome. So that's, uh, you know, that's like one of those <clears throat> classic stories that I hear from people who had a childhood sweetheart. And then they marry them, and then it's like they just have these uh, long-lasting relationships. And it makes me wonder. <laughs> it makes me wonder, though, because I wonder, like, you know, a lot of times, you know, we try to keep our children from uh, being with somebody. And we say, oh, you, you're not in love. You don't even know what love is yet or something like that. <laughs> and um, And then we say stay away from, you know, don't worry about the boys or the girls or whatever right now. Just concentrate on school get your career started, da, 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 you know, and then you get married later. But it sure. seems as though people who do something similar to what you did seem to have the most success. Well, you know, it, it is, I don't, I honestly, I don't recommend, I really, Norman, I don't recommend anybody get married young unless they really, they really know that their, you know, their lives are just fused together, you know, by the grace of God. And, and I, I mean, because, because you change so drastically every like three to five years. I mean, I'm a different person than I was five years ago. And so, you know, um, I'm actually, I'm in the middle of writing a book right now. It should be done here in the next month called, um, for after, after all this getting married at 18 surviving now we're in our mid forties. So, so, um, uh, I, uh, uh, somebody asked me a while back, you know, what's, so how do, how do you survive, you know, getting married young and, is it just you're just too lazy to divorce or you just, I mean, what's going on? Everything just always perfect and right. And like, no, no. Actually, um, through the course of time, you know, we ran into a number of significant challenges. And um, and so I'm actually writing about that in a book that I'm, I'm writing right now called The Four People That You Marry. Huh. And I realized all of our challenges, if I was going to take rather than just, you know, say so we face this challenge or that challenge and identify with just a few, I was asking the Lord, how could I possibly, like, you know, like write something that would identify with every person that ever reads it. And this is, this is what started, started coming in. And so I can tell you a little bit about it if you like. Oh, yeah, it's I would love to hear about content. that. So, so the four people that you marry are the, are the following. They're the person you think they are. They're the person they think they are. The person that they are right now. And the person that they are becoming. Hmm. So I'll go through each one of them. And, and problems, by the way. Difficulties and conflicts and problems arise when you fall in love with only one or two out of the four. Mm. And the problem is, is when somebody, when one of the others shows up and you weren't planning on it, you can feel fooled. You can feel like you were sold a bill of goods and you can actually, you can wake up going, hey, I didn't sign up for this. Um, this is not who I married. This isn't what I got into. 
And when that happens, you can actually justify separating, breaking the covenant and, um, and ending the relationship because you, you feel like you were, you were lied to. I, I got married under false pretenses. So it's really important people realize they always marry four people. So the first one is the person you think they are. That's the person that you describe to all of your friends when she's not around. That's the person that, that, that is in your mind. It's the person you imagine them to be when they're not with you. And you always think, Especially if you love them, you always think just these amazing, amazing things, right? The second is the person they think they are. And the person they think they are is always somebody not quite as good as the person you think they are, um, especially especially women. They downplay themselves all the time. So they'll say, you know, I'm fat, I'm ugly, I'm this, I'm that, thinking they're unattractive. And they'll say that out loud in front of their husband or boyfriend or whatever. And the problem with that is that what they're doing is they, they're forcing you into a place of disagreement. Because God help you if you ever agree with them, right? They want to, yeah. they want this, they need that disagreement. They need that reassurance that this is actually not the case, even though somewhere in their back of the mind, they think that about themselves. The problem with that is there's no sustainable intimacy in that kind of a relationship because you can't build intimacy on, upon disagreement. Yeah. And, uh, and so eventually, um, eventually a person has to stop and drop the lies that they believed about themselves and really believe what their spouse is saying. And if they don't, then there arises problems in the relationship. You constantly tell her she's beautiful and she doesn't believe you over and over and over again. Pretty soon, it starts to wear, man. It it, it becomes a uh, becomes cumbersome. Mm-hmm. Um, then uh, then the the third one is the person that they are right now, and that's this. You know, it's like I will say, listen. You know, every person's life is a book, and never judge the entire story by the chapter that you walked in on, yeah. but recognize that you've been brought into their life to actually help them write a beautiful conclusion. And so the person that they are right now is a person that's on a journey. It's a person that's still in the process process of being created. Not a person that you get to change, but it's a person that you have the ability to influence the days that are ahead and, and give them amazing moments of, of uh, love and acceptance and, and assuring them that they're enough. That's the big deal. Um, then the fourth person is is the person that they are becoming, and this is the most important. Um, this is the person that God has always known from before the foundation of the earth. Um, this is the person that, that God uh, sees and knows and is convinced is um, it, it, he, he is just convinced of them. And this is the person that's emerging from the the promise that he who began a, a good work and he will be faithful to complete it until the revelation of the day of Christ. So, you know, if this is what I tell especially husbands, I say, listen, if you're if you're willing to walk with that spouse through the journey, if you're willing to lay down who you think they are and lay down who they think they are and and lay down essentially your own perceptions of self, accept where they are in the journey that they're on right now. And walk with them to this glorious conclusion of the revelation of Christ, Christ formed in them. And no matter if it takes an entire lifetime or beyond, if, if you're willing to walk with them, the rewards would be tremendous. And so the challenge that I give people is, you know, um, learn to learn to recognize each one of these four people exists and then just fall in love with the entire process. And and that way you won't be caught off guard. So what do you when say somebody to the- shows up you weren't planning on? <laughs> Yeah, I, I feel you. So that was where I was going to ask this question. What do you say to those people that talk about, you know, being equally yoked with someone? Because a lot of times, let's just say, for instance, there's uh, one person in the couple believes one thing about, let's say, 
um, I'm trying to think of a good one. Like, let's just say they, they believe that their gifts have ceased or something like that or whatever, and the other person doesn't believe that way. So are you, would you say based on, I mean, one thing like that, that they would be unequally yoked, or you think that being unequally yoked goes deeper than that? Well, I, th- I think the unequally yoked. I mean, there's, there's a lot. There's a there's a lot of great revelation in that. But let's just like tie it into marriage because that's usually where it is in terms of relationship and marriage. Being not unequally yoked with unbelievers, it says, what fellowship does righteousness have with unrighteousness? What communion does light have with darkness? So it's contrasting, comparing righteousness versus unrighteousness, and light versus darkness. Differences. I don't think differences of of perspective or opinion on on scripture, theology, or the gospel would be the difference between light and darkness as much as it would be, you know, um, you know, just just two people on a journey of discovering um, some things about God as He's unveiling revelation. Now it's nice if they're on the same trajectory. Let's say two believers on the same trajectory. Um, but if it, I think a lot of times the differences and the diversities teach us, you know, basically how to have a lot of grace and to, and to live a, a lifestyle or an active lifestyle of grace-based discipleship within the home. And so I very rarely will uh, a spouse, uh, two Christian uh, people married, husband and wife, see everything exactly the same way. And, um, and, and as long as they can come to terms with that, it comes, you know, come to grips with like letting them take their journey. I mean, the prodigal son story has a great lesson for all of us, and that is the, the, the father let the son take a journey without condemnation. So if we're willing to let our spouse take their journey, in a sense, without condemnation, you know, you got one grace-based person and one legalistic person, um, so you got one Protestant, one Catholic, you know, I've, I've seen all these things work because love covers a multitude of, you know, we say sin. Well, that's light versus darkness. Sin, sin is just anything that creates a, an illusion of distance or separation. That's what sin does. Sin, sin causes us to feel like there's a separation between us and God. And so, when we say love covers a multitude of sin, we can say it like this: love covers a multitude of, of distance or separation. Love actually brings us together, in spite of our differences and in spite of our distances. And so, you know, um, I think I think two people. Um, two people who let love, let the love of Christ dwell in them richly can find themselves to have incredible intimacy uh, of relationship and covenant, even if they have completely different beliefs on, on certain things regarding God. Now let's talk about like the light and darkness thing. You got a spouse that's married to somebody who's unbelievers. Well, you know, the grace of God actually covers that as well. Now you're first Corinthians chapter seven, verse 13 says a woman has an unbelieving husband. He's willing to live with her. Yeah, don't divorce him. In other words, if he's actually willing to stick with you, yeah, you like being with him, he's willing to hang out with you, you know, stick it out. And then the next verse is the, is the, the kicker for me. This part just blows my mind. It says, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified through the believing wife. The unbelieving wife is sanctified through the believing husband. So you have this sense of going, wait a minute, sanctified means made holy, set apart, set apart for, for a purpose, a holy purpose unto God. So apparently when God sees us as one, it's not just on some metaphorical level, because at the core of who we are, the eternal, the most real part of you is spirit. And so, um, you know, he really sees us united in such a way that the, the power of righteousness has the ability to completely override the power of, of any sinfulness. And um, 
you know, if the Old Testament was anything, was a demonstration of the power of sin. But if the New Testament, the grace of God and the cross of Christ and power of the resurrection is anything, it's a demonstration of the power of righteousness. So now I'm not enamored with original sin. I'm really interested in original righteousness. Um, and so I think, you know, if a person has a spouse and they, you know, they love each other, they're willing to stay together, he doesn't want to leave you, you're a believer. And it's um, it's not a it's not a demand for you to leave your faith. Choose one or the other, and he's willing to stay with you. Stay. I mean, that's Paul's admonition. Believe it or not, you know, um, they're actually sanctified by you. And I I think that's a that's a mind blowing. I mean that that'll yeah it theologically. is <laughs> it, it's a, it'll it'll really freak you out theologically. I mean, but it, that that theme actually extends throughout the New, New Testament. Mark chapter two. Um, when the paralyzed guy is let down in front of Jesus at the at the house meeting, mm-hmm. they break through the roof and they let him down. There's no record in that story that that man ever says anything. He, he never. There's no record that that he asks his friends to take him to Jesus or anything. They just seem to want him. It says and the Bible says, when Jesus saw the faith of his friends, he said, "Son, your sins are forgiven." Mm-hmm. Okay, so so wait a minute. What what is that doesn't make any sense to me the faith of his friends how is it that this guy receives grace because of the faith of someone else mm-hmm. you even push that theme further back and you go to like jeremiah 5 1 where god says to jeremiah run through the streets of the city of jerusalem see if you can find one person who seeks the truth and i'll pardon her and of course we know by the new testament that the truth is not a concept or a philosophy it's, right. a, it's a person it's a person of jesus christ so you you um Oh my goodness! You you have this uh, this sense where uh, you know in the Old Testament God's looking at a city that's ripe for judgment, and Jeremiah that's ready to just you know level this city with some massive harsh prophetic words. And God says to Jeremiah, "Hey, run through the street the streets of the city, and holler, and you know see if you can find one person, you know, one person, one man." He says, "In this city that has a hunger for truth, for my presence, in a sense." I'll give grace to the entire city. I'll pardon the entire city. You know, uh, on the cross, Jesus looks at a group of people responsible for his death and says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He's not appealing to God to do something he doesn't want to do. He's he's saying uh, he's saying what he's hearing the Father say. He says, I only say what I hear the Father say. So he's putting the Father's heart on display. This is the nature and the character of God, and that is to extend grace to be better than we think he can be. So, you know... Um, Coming back all the way back to this point of marriage, people are contentious about about doctrine. Goodness, don't let doctrine, you know, kill your love or kill your covenant. I mean, that's uh, that's uh, that's un- that would be un- you know highly unfortunate. I think there's something about the saving grace of Christ that uh, that extends farther than uh, farther than some of our dogmas have allowed it to go. Yeah. Um, so. As as it relates to your marriage and everything, I know that um, Tracy wrote a book that was basically talking about a pastor's wife or something like that, um, mm-hmm. how to how to deal with those kind of things. So, as you were going <laughs> through as you were going through your marriage and ministry at the same time, what kind of because okay, let me, before I ask that question, because I know that obviously you're an itinerant minister now you you're going all over the world ministering the gospel and i know that on your website you're talking about how there is nothing that you are lacking or whatever that you find you have no financial needs quote unquote but there are things you want to do and so you're Mm -hmm. saying like 
So if you if a person feels led to partner with you or so into your ministry or whatever, that would be great and um, all that. So I know that with everyone, there is a story of the struggle that they went through. And then all of a sudden there's this breakthrough one day and then they boom, it's like whatever things just open up like they were just amazed at how it happened or whatever. So what what was it in your situation like that was like that you can kind of share, you know, in sure in a way sure. to tell, you know, how you went through that transition, so to speak? Yeah, you know, nobody ever gets into ministry because because they're they're uh, because of money. I mean, yeah. I, I think I, I just it, uh, for the majority of of tracing my ministry, even as uh, pastoring, you know, a lot of it was sacrifice. You know, so sewing back into your own church, a lot of it was, um, uh, you know, we were going through a building program at one point in time. I mean, we just we put ourselves into crazy debt. I mean, I know of uh, a lot of ministers that, um, you know, it's. Uh, you know, it's it's not like you're thinking, well, you got. It. I thought I thought this was your plan. I thought this was your idea, and yet, you know, here you are struggling. And so, you know, financially, for many many years, Tracy and I, you know, struggled a ton. And uh, um, you know, I would say that you know, the big point of of turning for us was really part of it was this message of grace for us. Um, it was it was uh, uh, George and Banoff. Um, who's become just a father to me, I, I accidentally actually got invited to um, to speak at a George Vanoff conference. Basically meaning, I, I and this is a, it's a funny story, and I won't go into the, the whole of it, but um, Tracy and I were at a point of just real discouragement in our lives. Ministry, you know, I've, been, I've been a pastor. We had resigned. That's when she wrote the book. That's why I chuckled earlier. It's a book called uh, Walking with a Shepherd. It's basically a book about being a pastor's wife, uh, for pastor's wives and, and, you know, why that's, why that's difficult. And so, so she writes this book, you know, um, I'm, I'm struggling to make ends meet at a computer company. I've been a senior pastor at a church, but, you know, we just, in lieu of taking pay raises, we, um, we just didn't make a whole lot of money. We, I always end up hiring more staff and, and, you know, and then the church would grow and we'd hire more staff. And so, um, so, but I, I, and, and part of the reason for that is uh, for a long time, I struggled with the poverty mindset because I grew up in a missionary's home. So we had very, very little. And uh, some of the remnants of the holiness movement were that um, they had this belief. I don't think anybody ever wrote this down, but everybody seemed to live like this, that sickness and poverty were signs of deep spirituality. Yeah. And so you shunned wealth and you shunned, um, you know, if, if you were ill or if you were broke, you must be deeply spiritual. It's kind of like the life of a monk. Yeah. And so when I got into pastoral ministry, I was really heavily critic of, critical of prosperity preachers. Um, I was critical of, of anybody who, you know, just talk up the money thing. So, you know, here I'm just like, you know, we gave so much away. I mean, we, but we weren't giving from a place of obedience, but more from a place of religious, um, um, religious ideology. And I realized, hey, that God doesn't bless that. And so I can look back now and I can see. Um, here's a principle that, that the Lord spoke to us, and that was the difference between seed and bread. You know, everything, everything God brings to you will come to you in the form of either seed or bread. And uh, seed is for planting or investing. And bread is for consumption and nourishment. And wisdom is to know the difference between the two and understand the, the goodness of the difference between the two. Well, I was planting everything. I was like sowing everything. 
and the whole concept that you can't outgive God. Well, the, it's never meant to become a. I mean, that's not a. That's not a scripture. It's actually, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's a, not a verse. It's a nice, good principle, but but it's not a scripture in a sense. Yeah. Um. You you can actually you can actually take all the blessings that God gives you, and you can turn around and throw them all away. And it'd be like me giving my son a tremendous treasure, a really, really great gift, and he turns around and gives it away to somebody else. And uh, on one hand, I admire what he's done. On the other hand, he ain't getting anything from me for a while until he learns how to value the gifts of, you know, they're coming from the Father. So if God had honored my, I would say, extreme generosity that wasn't based on hearing his voice, it would have reinforced a heart or mindset that I think he really wanted to break off of me. Yeah. So we spent a lot of our life just broke, scraping to get by, but feeling real spiritual about it. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I was I was actually just driving somebody. I was just a driver for a conference. I wasn't a speaker. I wasn't I wasn't even pastoring at the time. I wasn't any any of that. And um, and Georgian told somebody. Um, in a conversation, the guy was actually driving at the time. He said, have Bill start the afternoon session because the speakers, the speakers missed his plane. He's not going to make it in. So have Bill start the afternoon session. Well, this guy notifies me, um, just a few minutes before the afternoon session starts. And, um, uh, I, I had, I mean, here I am with like, you know, a thousand people, you know, it was like 1600 people were registered for this conference. And here I am, you know, with essentially five minutes notice, and I'm supposed to get up and speak for 90 minutes. And um, and and I was, I, I didn't have time to be nervous. I didn't have time to be frightened about it. I had absolutely no sense that God was going to show up. And in my mind, it was going to be a complete train wreck. I wasn't up there to impress anybody. At the time, I just didn't really even care about, about looking good or sounding good or anything like that. I just got up and just said, God, you got to show up. And he did, man, he did in that meeting in such a radical way. Georgian um, sticks his head in the door in the back and he sees, you know, um, God moving in the room. Tons of healings going on. I mean, it was incredible. People were getting empowered in prophetic words. I mean, it, was, it was a crazy, crazy meeting. And, um, and he said, he comes up to me and he asks me this question, where's Bill? And we begin to realize at that moment. The bill that he had asked to do the, the afternoon meeting wasn't the bill that this guy thought it was. It was a completely different guy altogether. Hmm. And because they hadn't mentioned last names, he had just assumed um, that it was me that George was talking about. So it was a total, it was a total <laughs> mistake. Um, wow. It was a complete misunderstanding. But George looks at me and goes, um, would you do this again tomorrow? And I said, I have no idea what I even did today. This is, I mean, but the next day the same thing happened. And then he goes, would you come with me to Tampa? Come with me to, you know, Boston, come with me. So I ended up traveling, doing a ton of conferences with George and, and through the exposure from those events and the amazing things that God did in that time, built a, a large network of relationships with pastors and leaders from all over the nation, really all over the world. And, uh, and then, you know, of course they'll invite you to come to the church and speak. And so, and so, uh, there's places I've been going to now for many, many years. And that was a long, long time ago. And, and so for many years, I've just been traveling all over, but again, it all happened by accident. People will often come up and say, how did you get to where you are now? You know, how'd you get through the struggle? How'd you get, and I, I realized, you know, it was a total God moment. I have absolutely no idea how to tell you how to orchestrate that. 
I just say, you know, God will, when you're ready, God will put doorways of opportunity in front of you. And when he does, just say yes. You know, because I could have looked at Rich and said, this is all a mistake and I can't do this. But uh, thankfully, I didn't have time to even think about that. I, I realized this is going to happen. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was a real, it was a real, it was one of those rare lightning strike kind of moments. But, um, and, you know, and, and of course, over the, over the course of years, we pastored a number of different churches, was an Assembly of God pastor for 12 years in Austin. Now, I'm at a Presbyterian church, and people wonder, how in the world did that happen? And um, <laughs> yeah. so, you know, here I am full-time as a pastor. As a matter of fact, i got to go speak this evening a couple of hours, uh, in a couple of hours tonight at the church and, and this Sunday as well, uh, since we happen to be at, at home this weekend. But, um, you know, the, the pastor of this church is a phenomenal brother and a dear friend, one of the best friends I've ever had. And, and uh, um, he... Uh, Though Presbyterian, grew up Presbyterian, has just a, uh, had an encounter with the Holy Spirit and a love for the scriptures and a love for the Holy Spirit. And so we just bonded together, not on the basis of any denominational connection, but on the basis of our, our uh, relationship with the Holy Spirit. And so brought us together and we just, it's great. We're, you know, walking, walking together, leading this, uh, leading this beautiful church here in Celebration Florida. So, so basically, um, I wanted to ask you this. Um, so basically, so how long ago did this happen when Georgian, I mean, you know, when uh, that misunderstanding or whatever led to you ministering? About eight years ago. So um, after this happens, obviously, then God catapults you to a level where it's like you couldn't even imagine. Um, and yeah. it seems like um, like with with what you had, uh, what, what you experienced or whatever, um, a lot of people will probably look at what you're experiencing and what you did experience um, at that point in time as some, you know, some luck or something like that. But uh, and I know that sometimes it seems as though some people, it, they get to a place of prominence or whatever the case, if that's what God has for them at a younger age than others. And, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know, I'm sure that there are people out there that wonder, like, how, you know, how do they know, like, for instance, if they're in ministry and, like you said, you were working at one time and pastoring, how do they know, like, okay, now they're going to be going into full-time ministry? Was that when you basically kind of went into full-time ministry where you weren't working a natural job anymore? Uh, yeah. I mean, I had I have been a full-time pastor prior to that. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, but God was really—I think He was—he was breaking a lot of that old mindset off of us. Mm-hmm. You know, um, preparing us. Uh, yeah, preparing us to it, again, really, Norman. It's all about the journey. I, mean, I think everybody's looking for the moment that that moment of, of catapult. But I would say that the moments before that were just as important, and they were actually necessary to set us up for that moment. Um, because I, I was not of a mindset to be able to steward. Uh, any kind of wealth or influence at that point. It's almost like, it's almost like this. God will allow you to go through whatever journey is necessary to break off all heart connection to wealth or influence. And then he brings you wealth and influence. <laughs> it's like, it's like he brings you the things, he brings you the things you want when you no longer want them. Yeah. And, uh, you know, because it, it, he's just not going to honor, you know, um, the desires of our heart, if those desires have 
have a place uh, on, on an altar of worship. You know, something like that. Uh, I don't know how better to say it. Yeah. yeah. But put it in the language. You know, but you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I know what you're yeah. saying. Yeah. At the same time, I think what God's doing is he's, is he's trying to, he's trying to somehow um, sever our allegiance to these things, but at the same time, teach us how to steward them. So part of severing the allegiance is getting us to realize, okay, these, these things aren't worth worshiping, but they're also not bad. You know, they're, they're tools. They're purely tools. And so learning how to use tools is kind of a big deal if you're going to, you know, like build a house. And since God has called us to disciple nations, I think part of the, the mandate of that is that we actually learn how to steward tremendous wealth because it takes tremendous wealth to disciple a nation. And not, not wealth that you necessarily possess in yourself, but wealth that you uh, have, have influence over. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> excuse me. So, uh, for example, I was just visiting with a man the other day who's in charge of a fund that um, controls billions and billions of dollars. Now they're not they're not his dollars, but he um, he gets to dictate or determine what happens to that. And the reason he does is because he's stewarded he's stewarded the influence that he has with such incredible excellence. So I realize on some level this man is discipling a nation. I mean, through the course of time, God has allowed us, I mean, now to be in a church where we are getting uh, on a weekly basis to minister to people who have tremendous influence. I can't disciple personally, disciple an entire, entire nation unless I'm willing to get into some political sphere where I can make decisions that affect that nation. Mm-hmm. If I'm not wanting to do that, but I want to disciple a nation, then then I have to be able to have access to the lives of influencers that make choices and decisions that affect uh, many, many people. So God has opened up doors of influence for us in so like Washington, D.C., um, many doors of influence there uh, on both sides of the political aisle on uh, um, within our, our own church, um, having people uh, in our congregation who make decisions that affect the lives of tens and even hundreds of thousands of people. So having that, um, you know, having I could not have done this 12, 15 years ago. Um, I would not have known what to do with it. I would have maybe spent it on myself or um or used it to launch my own my own thing but now i'm just really interested if somebody asked me the other day said um what is your you know what are you doing for the kingdom of god or what do you see happening in your life for the kingdom of god and i said you know i i used to want to go out and save the world until i came to a realization that he's already done that i don't need to go out and be a savior we already have one and um i i need to be a proclaimer of what christ has already done uh, I, I, otherwise, what I'm subconsciously doing is telling the world that what Jesus did wasn't enough, and I have to, I have to be here to add to it. And so, um, I'm not so much interested in saving the world. I'm really interested in just being a good son. That's that's what I want to be right now. And from that place of just surrendering to be a, a son of the Father, um, I feel I feel like, you know, there, there comes a point in the Father's life where it's his greatest his greatest joy to entrust his son with, you know, with influence, with wealth, with with everything that really belongs to him. Everything I have belongs to my children, you know, and through the course of time, they'll they'll obtain more access to the things that actually are already theirs. And so I feel like it's the same way in the spirit. As we grow, um, God, God grants us more access to things as he knows that we're going to be able to steward them well, not spend them on, on ourselves, not waste it, not, uh, but be able to steward it in such a way as to bring increase for the kingdom of God. So that's 
that's really, I think, where, I mean, I, I think there's a lot of people maybe listening, um, Norman, that, that are wondering, oh, man, I want to I want to get out, and I want to start ministry, and then I want to be successful, and, of course, I want to work for the kingdom of God, I want to, and all those different things. And really, when it all comes down to it, you just got to let go of all your own ambition. And I'm just speaking to any person out there who's listening to this and saying, what do I, you know, what do I do with this, this fire in my bones? You rest in being a good son. Just rest in being a, a child of the father. Rest in being a daughter. Rest in being, letting the father's uh, love just envelop you. Letting the father's uh, name empower you. And uh, and and then repre- learn to represent the family well. Represent the father well. And the more that you represent the father well, you represent the family well with honor and integrity and, and with intimacy and drawing people into it, you know, releasing the spirit of adoption. You know, sons and daughters have that, in a sense, to give away as to bring others into the families. You, you discover that the father starts entrusting you with more and more responsibility. And as that responsibility increases and grows, um, the very things that you wanted way back when start to suddenly start unfolding for you when they're no longer the biggest priority. Um, the biggest priority to think of all of our hearts ought to be just to, just to be a, a good son, a good daughter, uh, of an amazing father. So, you know, I have, um, I have one more, um, pressing kind of, uh, issue that I wanted to ask you about before we go. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm going to shift gears here and talk a little bit about race relations in America. Um, yeah. I remember when you and I first met, um, I don't remember exactly. I think the church called Vineyard or something like that. I can't remember exact name, mm-hmm. but um, basically, I knew there was a divine connection, and I was just like, okay, I don't know how um, all this is going to come together because it was kind of one of those moments where it was brief, but I knew it was significant. And um, but then the funny thing about it was, <clears throat> you came to our church. Um, and I, I didn't even remember that I met you. I just knew it was something I just remembered. Like, I heard your voice. <laughs> and I'm like, why does his voice sound so familiar? I'm like, I know. I, I feel like I've heard him before. And here I am sitting through the whole service, like, the whole time thinking, like, this guy sounds familiar. Why do I, why do I feel like I know I've met him, but I don't remember where I met him or how I met him? And then all of a sudden, <laughs> I came back, you were in the back, and I came back there to talk to you and just kind of like kind of uh, pick up where you left off in the message about identity. Right. And we were talking about some stuff. And then I'm up here like while you're talking to somebody else before I got the chance to talk to you, while I'm I'm going in my phone like um, just trying to like, I don't know if I was typing your name and thinking I was going to add it or something like that. But all of a sudden I'm typing your name in my phone and I see your number come up. And I was like, wait a minute. I'm like, wait a minute. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so I'm thinking like, okay, is this the same? Okay, I'm like, this is, I was tripping. I was bugging. So I was like, okay, wow. let me just come up to him and, and see what's getting ready to happen because I didn't even know how I had your number in my phone. So then um, then all of a sudden while we were talking and then, you know, it was like all of a sudden I started to realize, oh, now I know where I remember him from. And then we started to get into that conversation and everything. But I'm going to tell you the point that really, because um, I don't know what you were thinking then. And, you know, after I finished <laughs> telling you what I was thinking, you could tell me. But at that point in time, 
in my mind, I was like, man, because I remember you said this had to be God because I don't just give my number out like that. Mm-hmm. And then, and then I saw you again. You came back to the church months later, and I think um, it was it might have been a, almost a year later when you came back. But anyway, whenever you came back, um, I came up to you, uh, or you came up to me, and we were talking and. Um, then after service, you started praying for people, and I came up to you, and we, and as you were praying and you were prophesying some things to me and everything, there was this moment that something occurred, and I don't know if you remember, you know, because it was a while ago, but it's like the way that you kind of like you prayed for me, and then certain things mm. that you said, and then it's like um, my head touched your head, and it was like we would just. I don't even know how to explain it, but it was like this moment where I felt like you were a true brother to me. Like it was like mm. it, it was it was a deep moment for me. And in light of you know what's going on in America right now with um, mm-hmm. a lot of division, specifically between um, Caucasians and African Americans, um, you know, I I feel the call in my life to bring race relations um, in America and, and just beyond, you know, I just feel that calling. And um, so I always get touched when I see something where it's like, you know, uh, specifically it may, it only really happens. It mainly happens rather when I see Caucasians and African-Americans come together because Mm. of the deep rooted thing that has been here in America for so many hundreds of years. And um, so anyway, my point in saying all that is, you know, I I felt a special connection with you specifically in that moment where I was like, man, this is like really my brother. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, it was just, it was something special about it. But I want to know from your perspective, I want to know what you were thinking as far as, you know, leading up to that moment. But I also want to hear you weigh in on... um, What's happening in America, aside from the sin and ignorance, we know those two things, but aside from that, what factors are you seeing that's causing the racial divide, and what do you feel uh, should be the role of the body of Christ in the process of seeing healing and reconciliation, especially between the groups that are known as black and white, which is the most polarizing color, you know, whatever, in the whole spectrum? Wow, that's uh, that's a great question. Hard one for me to speak to, um, mainly because I, I've, I've I've come to realize I I just I don't even have I don't have the right to comment on on the black experience. I've I've come to realize I I just you know I I think a lot when I hear it, it makes me chuckle when I hear you know other white male preachers talk about. Um, racism as if they get a clue. I, I've realized I don't have a clue. I honestly, I do not know at all. None of us do. And, we, and we've got to, this is one of the, I think, the first points of healing is, um, uh, you know, all of us white people got to, <laughs> white guys, we got to come to this just admission. We have zero clue as to what the black experience is like. And, and here's the thing, but here's the uniting factor. And that is no matter who we are, none of us signed up for this. 
you know, none of us, none of us had a choice on how we get into this thing, you know, who we were born to, what we were born as, uh, you know, racially. I mean, we can't, <laughs> the, the, the whole concept of, of, of uh, I, I find myself increasingly ashamed at the idea of white privilege because I begin to realize, my goodness, this is this is just the remnants of an old old mindset that needs to die, and I, I pray it would die in a generation or two. I don't I don't you know I don't see it happening right now, but I, I mean it just begins to me with a with a revelation that for me I, I have no idea, I have zero idea what it's like. I have I have a bit of a I have a bit of a um, I guess the, the closest thing to a hint that I have. Um, would be because of our time in missions, we spent some time in Trinidad and Tobago. If you look at my school picture from back then, I like showing it to my kids because I'm like, here, see if you can find your dad. And I'm not hard to find in the crowd. Um, and I was the only white kid in the class. Mm-hmm. I was also the only kid in, in the class that had to put sunscreen on. And uh, my friends thought that was hilarious, you know, because when everybody got to <laughs> play soccer, uh, you know, I had to stay inside and put my sunscreen on. And I remember, you know, crying about that. I thought, this is so unfair. Now, there's no, that doesn't hold a candle at all to, you know, what people in this country felt because the minute that, it, you know, here I am, white missionary kid, come back from Trinidad, Tobago, where I'm in the in the tiny minority, to come back to the United States of America, suddenly I feel important all over again. And I think as long as people feel important, they have no place to comment, you know, when it comes to that thing, because what we're, I realize we're dealing with you know, um, we're dealing with a nation in which, you know, entire races of people feel devalued. And when, uh, you know, when I stand up in here, um, you know, white people talk about the black experience. I'm like, listen, ha- have you ever felt devalued? Because I-, I don't think I've ever felt devalued to that point. And um, nobody should ever have to feel it. I, I, I realize though, and maybe if, if I do have any comment, it's really for, for, um, you know, my white brothers and sisters, and that is to realize, uh, the concept of value and devalue is, is huge in, in, in the way that we respond. If, if I don't feel like something affects me, then I can, I can laugh it off as no big deal. I can act like it's no big deal. And so we say, well, racism is no big deal. And, um, I realized this one day, I have, um, uh, I mean, I mean, at a conference one time, I have a, Dear a friend, a sweet, sweet friend of mine, she's, uh, she's black and we're sitting at a table and this, um, pastor, um, a godly man, otherwise godly man, decides he's going to tell a racial joke of some sort and it falls flat. And I just kind of look at him like I'm shaking my head, but I chuckle. Actually, I laughed out loud a little bit because not, not because what he was saying was funny. It was because unfortunately this is sometimes the way that I deal with things that are that are awkward and uncomfortable. It wasn't funny. It was just awkward. Mm-hmm. And so I chuckle awkwardly at it. And my friend says nothing. And, uh, and afterwards, um, she approaches me and says, um, you know, really expresses that she was really, really deeply hurt because, because I didn't correct that. And I realized the reason I didn't correct it is because I didn't understand it. it the, 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 the devaluing of it didn't affect me, and 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 because it didn't affect me, I didn't see I didn't see the level of hurt, and that's where I realized I I've lost my right to comment. I, I, I've we've got to somehow come to a realization that 
this culture that devalues one race and exalts and, and values another. That whole thing has got to die. When Jesus prayed that we would be one, I, I mean, I don't think he was kidding. <laughs> I think he was, I think he was absolutely a hundred percent serious. And so I've, I don't know, I've just kind of like, you know, I used to have a whole lot of things to say about, you know, racism in America. And I just, I've, I've, I've kind of like put my hand over my mouth and I just want to say amen to everything when somebody says, you know, let me tell you about the black experience. Let me tell you about what it's like. I, a dear friend uh, of mine here in town, um, this man named Brad Darty, he used to play for the Cleveland Cavaliers. He was their leading point score, uh, leading score until LeBron James showed up. <laughs> and, uh, and, and Brad's seven foot tall. He's, he's wealthy beyond belief. He drives an awesome car. I get stopped, um, routinely, um, on a, on a regular basis. I can't remember the last time I was stopped routinely, but Brad, Brad gets stopped routinely. And, um, to this day, uh, and, and I, I'm just looking at that going, Oh my God, this is, that's got to shut down. There's got to be, I don't, we got to have some, some heart change in this nation that shuts that stuff down. When, you know, when an NBA basketball player who just happens to be driving a nice car, get stopped just because of the color of his skin. That's, uh, to me, that's absolutely unreal. And then they discover who he is, and then they want autographs and see if they can take a selfie with him and everything, and he's looking going, why did you stop me? He just told me the other day, oh, man, I got stopped again. His wife gets stopped on a regular basis just because they happen to be driving a nice car. I mean, I mean to me, the, the fact that we still live in a world that even allows that kind of a thing is, is just, it, it, uh, it's, it's, a, it's an injustice that I'm, you know, my prayer is that, that uh, Somehow, somehow we we listen, and uh, it's impossible to t- it's impossible to tell. And I know for a person that says he doesn't comment on this, I'm commenting a lot. But let me say it <laughs> like this: it's 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 impossible. Uh, hopefully, my comments are making sense. Oh, they are they are great. To- I'm glad to hear it, Bill. It is great. I just want to let you know that. Go ahead, though. It, but it, it's it, it's impossible to tell a person who's hurt that they shouldn't be hurt. Well, you shouldn't feel hurt. Well, you shouldn't feel sued. It's impossible. If something causes a person pain, the first question we ought to ask is why, and then the second question we ought to ask is how can we stop it? Because if we can figure out why it causes pain, then we can figure out what we're doing wrong so we can stop doing it. And we've got an entire generation of people now who are in pain because uh, because of things that are that are happening that just shouldn't be happening. First off, we got to stop telling people they shouldn't be hurt. If they're hurt, we got to know why. Um, Jesus never condemned somebody because they were hurting. He just wanted to bring healing. And so, you know, across the board, I mean, it's a big deal. It's it, this is it's deeper than a physical healing issue. It's deeper than let's just say a prayer and be done with it. It's it's uh, we've got to have a heart change uh, in this country on a on a deep 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 level. But yeah, I felt the same thing too, Norman. When I met you, I felt like you know, I feel like I've met. I met a twin brother. I, I just, I'm honored to know you and call you a friend, and it's a, it's a, it's a pleasure and a privilege of mine. I appreciate you giving me a voice on your, on your program today to say some of these things. See, that's not a question I get asked a lot. Yeah, well, <clears throat> just to kind of um, continue on what you said, and um, it's, it's, it's interesting that um, on Facebook I, I put up a post, and I said on the post, um, is it more – is it more reverent? No, I said, um, if I stand for 
if I if I kneel at the cross and stand for the flag, does that mean that both are reverent? <laughs> and then I said, mm. and then I said, um, which one which one is more reverent to kneel or to stand? Wow. And then so after I did that post, um, you know, I had probably like I think about five people responded maybe, which is really shocking to me because I'm like only five people think that that's an important thing to talk about. That's, that's really interesting <laughs> so, to me. No, nobody wanted to kick that horn. At the yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and you know, so and and the right. thing about it was, so one person that responded, they made a comment to me, and it said, um, I, I said something about you know things happening to people that were unwarranted, and then she says, well, all they need to do is obey the law and listen to the cops. And I said, well, first oh, of all, man. you're telling me that the, the media is a lie and it's Satan, but yet you're telling me only what you saw from the media because obviously you can only go by what you saw there because you have no real life experience. So then right. I told her, I said, I'm one that's obeyed the law and I've listened to cops and I was still harassed. So what are you going to tell me? And right. she never responded to that. And it was just funny because... In my mind, what she did was she was dismissing it. She was dismissing what's happened to people based on color and yeah. not based on any evidence of anything or anything that was going to be life-threatening to a police officer or whatever. I mean, there's been several videos that have come out that we can see the person who got killed had no weapon and they weren't doing anything to deserve to be shot or whatever. Right, but yet they right. they had this happen to them. So the point is, is that um, you know what I've suggested, and I'm going to do it. Um, but I've I brought it up to certain people that um, I want to do a type of a forum where it'll be somewhat like a town hall meeting. Now there's this there's this video out, and I want to send it to you, man. I'm gonna tell you, it's, mm -hmm. it's it's very shocking in the sense of the words being used. But the message behind it is very deep. And I'm going to tell you, there's one thing that makes me, I mean, there's a couple things that really hit my heartstrings and make me weep. But one of the things that does that is the relations between specifically, like I said earlier, Caucasians and African Americans. That right there, and I, I think I first discovered it when I was watching Sister Act a long time ago. And all of a sudden, I saw all these people united together, and they were all different races. And all of a sudden, right. I just bawled. I cried yeah. like I never cried before, and you know about something like that. And and I didn't know what it was. Oh, yeah, I just saw that movie for the first time again. Like it's been like twenty years, but I just saw that movie the other day. Wow. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah so, it's interesting. I'm telling you, when I saw that unity between the groups of people. That was what made me cry, and I know there's something to that, and I really feel like in America, because of the fact that for whatever reason, black and white seem to be the only two groups of people that exist in America, right. <laughs> as most people that talk about stuff, is the only two people that come up, the two groups of people that come up, but the point is, is that I feel that there's a significance to that where when that issue gets healed, when that situation gets dealt with, and I'm talking about where people literally are talking to each other and they're being real about how they feel about the other race 
or what they think about the other race in that moment before they get educated. Because what I see it as is a moment where I'm going to tell you all of my ignorant statements. You tell me all your ignorant statements. And then we're going to talk about what's wrong about everything we just said. And then after we get all that done, (laughs) then we're going to say, now this is how it is. Now let's love each other through this. Because the problem is misunderstanding, ignorance, hatred that comes from ignorance, all these kind of things. And when people are educated, I mean, it's so many things that we could talk about as to, you know, um, the whole thing about media, how media has been the biggest proponent to causing racism because it portrays certain groups of people as a certain way. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you could say just the Asian guy, he's a guy he can kick you behind with karate or whatever. You got the Caucasian (laughs) guy, he's got the money, you know what I'm saying? And then you got the (laughs) African-American, he's the thug, he's going to jail, that kind of thing or whatever. Like that's always been since whenever. I mean, way back in the 1920s when they had silent movies, they were doing these things to portray African-American males as rapists and stuff like that. And they're going to come and right. get your Caucasian woman. And, you know, it was like stupid right, right. stuff like that. So the point is, is that I believe that when there, when there is a honest conversation that the two groups, those two groups specifically have together in whatever forum where they can be real about what they say, it's not going to be a retaliation based on it. It's just we can talk freely in this moment to say what we need to say in order for the other side to understand where we're coming from. Then I believe that will be a beginning of the healing process because until I can tell a doctor where I'm hurting, then they can't tell me how to fix it. Exactly. Wow. What a great statement. So that's the problem that I see on both sides. While I'm saying one thing from my side of it, then you're saying your thing from your side of it. Well, now we know where we both hurt. Now, how do we fix the hurt that we both feel? And in in America, one of the things that has been probably one of the biggest, I would call it telltale signs of certain things is the fact that um, that the African-American group of people is the only group that I know of that has never been quote-unquote compensated or given reparations for what happened to them. I mean, even Mm. Native Mm. Americans were given land and certain privileges and stuff like that, you know, whatever you want to say. Not even good good land. Not even good land, but at least they got land. You know what I'm saying? Like land, right, something, right. So the point I'm making is that there was, and then even the Japanese that were locked up during World War II, they got reparations for that. You know, yeah. stuff like that that happened, but yet, and, and even when we talk about, like, I just heard this on um, uh, Sid Roth's show. He was talking about the, the Jews over in, um, in Germany, that Germany mm-hmm. actually paid the Jews for what they lost or whatever. Like, they gave the money back to them, so to speak, um, for what they went through, and they apologized publicly and whatever else they did to make things right. And so yeah, what I'm saying, I, I, I completely, that's a, what an incredible gesture. All I'm saying is, you know, in America, 
that specifically, even that whole thing about the the outright apology and not just the apology, but something where it's like a real show of a deep disgust for what happened to say yes. this was an atrocity. You know, this is something that, you know, I mean, even when the Jews came out of slavery in Egypt, they got wealth. You know what I'm saying? Right. I mean, left with the wealth of the nation. Exactly. Yes. They didn't leave with nothing. Oh, wow. I mean, yeah. it, it's a yeah. whole lot of stuff to a bill, but the point is, is that no, uh, I get it. I get it. We 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 can. Uh, I definitely want to pick up that conversation another time, but um, I know that you got to go because you got to preach tonight, Bill. But I definitely appreciate your time being on here with me, and we're definitely going to have to schedule another time for us to start getting into identity. I really want to um, get into that because uh, we talked about doing that, and that's a powerful thing that I believe is also an answer to this race problem, that it's about identity as well. And so um, I really definitely want to get into that. And so let's definitely make that happen um, going into next year. I really want to schedule that, and um, I'm I'm sure that people that are listening are going to be looking forward to that because I'm definitely looking forward to it. Um, we're going to drop some knowledge on this thing <laughs> I love that thank you so much for your time today Noah. I really do appreciate your time and, and, and for putting this show together and for giving me an opportunity to, to speak to it I, I really thank you for that Bill I appreciate you um, you know making the time and, and being true to your word you know that means a lot to me and um, and I know that people can definitely uh, – I'm sure that people are now able to get a different side of you that's really going to be very personable and, you know, they're going to see, you know, wow, okay. You know, I think that people will be able to identify with a lot of what you said. And um, so I want you to tell people before you go how they can get in touch with you and all the kinds of stuff. Like, sure. just tell them. Yeah, well, you go to our website, it's just BillVanderbush.com. You can go to a face-to-Facebook page. I have a personal page that um, uh, keep a lot of things on there public so that everybody can follow along. Even if there is, it's kind of hit its limit. There's a there's a public page that's on there as well. I'm welcome to follow that, and I'll keep you up with where we're going to be. And then um, I also keep up my dad's ministry. Um, even though he's passed on, uh, his ministry is called Faith Mountain Ministries, and he does a radio show every. Friday, I say he does a radio show. I continue to do the radio show. That was his, and it's in the same format. It's kind of old school. It's a, it's a, you know, just real, you know, a straight gospel message. Um, I record that every single Friday, and then it, it airs uh, throughout the Midwest on many radio stations every Sunday. So, uh, really a privilege to do it, and it's just kind of a way to honor my father and, and keep uh, um, keep the, his his uh, legacy alive. So, um, so each one of those Faith Mountain Ministries, you can search for that. I think it's called VanderbushMinistries.com is the website for that one. So, if you go to if you go to BillVanderbush.com, that'll be the place that uh, that'll get you to our church website, Community Presbyterian Faith Mountain Ministries, our Facebook page, my blog. Uh, there's all kinds of stuff out there. So, okay, yeah. sounds good, man. And you on Twitter and um, Instagram also, right? All of them, man. Okay, yeah, got to be. All right. So Gotta be these days. <laughs> well, if you're, that's, if you're that's not true. on Twitter and Instagram, you don't even exist. Yeah. Speaking of <laughs> speaking of which, man. Speaking of which, I think um, 
I haven't. I don't know if I actually started following you yet, but we need to follow each other, man, on Twitter and Instagram yeah, yeah. and all that. Yeah. And keep up with what we're doing, man, because um, you know, God's doing some amazing things, and um, definitely uh, another way for us to keep our friendship, you know, going and everything, man. I really would appreciate that. Um, so, man, once again, Bill, I appreciate you being on the show. Thank you again for um, giving the giving your time and and um, and sharing your your heart and sharing about your life, man. It was really inspirational and it was um, enlightening. So I'm sure people out in the audience will definitely feel the same. So thank you again awesome. for being on the show and um, you have a great great evening and um, I'll be in touch with you soon. Okay. Thanks, Norman. Take care. All right. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.